Welcome to the Fastest Five Minutes presented by Kroll and Mooring. We are your co-hosts for this edition, Peter Ayer and Monica Sterling, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts, legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. We have a lot to cover this week. There are a number of important updates across a wide array of topics. So we'll go ahead and dive right in. We start with an update on the federal contractor vaccine mandate. Of particular note, the deadline for full vaccination is now January 18, 2022. It was previously December 8th of this year. The government has also issued FAQs to suggest a bit of flexibility on the deadline if companies are able to demonstrate meaningful and substantial progress. The situation continues to evolve rapidly. Agencies are issuing modifications with clauses. Primes are flowing down clauses to subs. There are legal challenges initiated by more than 20 state AGs. So it's quite dynamic. Also, and this is somewhat related, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or OSHA issued its interim rule, um, and this is known as the ETS or the emergency, emergency Temporary Standard. In essence, the ETS requires employers with 100 or more employees to ensure that their employees are either vaccinated by January 4, 2022, or submit to weekly testing. There are dozens of other requirements about policies, record keeping, paid leave, and more. The ETS is subject to a number of legal challenges. And as we sit here today, the Fifth Circuit has enjoined ETS from taking any steps to enforce the ETS. Um, There is a lot of litigation there. um, And obviously, we'll be watching to see how that unfolds. One final note about this set of issues, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission updated its guidance on workplace vaccine issues. Specifically, the guidance answers questions about employee religious objections to employer-based vaccine requirements. And it also focuses on how those religious objections interface with equal opportunity employment laws. It is an important reference point as employers review and consider requests for exemption based on sincerely held religious beliefs. Now I'm gonna turn it over to Monica. Thanks, Peter. Two items focused on cyber. First item, on November 4th, DOD announced significant changes to its Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification or CMMC program. These changes, which I'll I'll walk through briefly, are intended to simplify requirements and ease compliance burdens on contractors. Okay, so for CMMC 2.0, DOD made three big changes. First, it reduced the compliance levels from five to three. Second, it aligned the required security controls with NIST special publications 800-171 and-172. And third, it entirely eliminated the previously required maturity processes. The changes also include a shift to self-assessments for all but contractors supporting the most sensitive programs, as well as the return of plans of action and milestones to demonstrate compliance and achieve certification. In terms of implementation, CMMC 2.0 will go through the rulemaking process with estimates that the process could take between nine months and two years. Once that process is completed, DOD will begin to incorporate CMMC 2.0 requirements into contracts. But important here is that in the meantime, DOD has suspended its CMMC pilot program and will not approve the inclusion of CMMC requirements in any forthcoming DOD solicitations. So something for contractors to be aware of there. Second item, 
On November 3rd, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, issued a binding operational directive entitled, quote, reducing the significant risks of known exploited vulnerabilities, end quote, which applies to information systems operated by or for a civilian agency. The directive mandates that agencies review and update their internal vulnerability management procedures by January 3rd, 2022, which isn't that far away, remediate each vulnerability by the deadline set forth in the vulnerability catalog, which I'll talk about in a second, and report the vulnerability remediation status through CISA's Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Federal Dashboard. On the vulnerability catalog, CISA released a catalog of almost 300 vulnerabilities in commonly used software known to be exploited by threat actors. The directive requires federal civilian agencies to remediate these vulnerabilities within the prescribed, prescribed deadlines. CISA quote strongly recommends, however, that private businesses voluntarily review the catalog, sign up to receive updates, and remediate the listed vulnerabilities in order to strengthen their cybersecurity defenses. As this group knows, strong recommendations from agencies are typically worth some attention. All right, thank you, Monica. Now an update on commercial item definitions. On November 4th, the FAR Council issued a final rule that effectively replaces the FAR definition of commercial item with bifurcated definitions for commercial product and commercial service. Effective December 6th of 2021, the new references for commercial products and commercial services or both will be populated throughout the FAR and references to commercial item will be removed. However, and this is important, the final rule does not create substantive changes to the existing requirements for commercial products and services, nor does it create any new solicitation provisions or contract clauses. But it's widely expected that there will be changes in the future in terms of treatment of products versus services. Uh, next, we turn to an important update from DOJ on enforcement priorities. On October 28th, DOJ Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco delivered remarks at the American Bar Association National Institute on White Collar Crime. She announced three immediate changes that the DOJ will make to support its enforcement priorities. First, it will require companies to disclose non-privileged information about all individual involvement in corporate misconduct, regardless of status, position, or seniority, in order to be eligible for any cooperation credit in an investigation or subsequent enforcement action. Second, DOJ will evaluate all prior corporate misconduct when determining appropriate corporate dispositions, whether or not the prior conduct is similar to the conduct under investigation. DOJ's consideration of this information includes evaluation of the historical misconduct and what it reveals about the overall effectiveness of a company's compliance programs. Third, DOJ's rescinding prior guidance indicating that monitorships are disfavored or should be the exception to the rule. DOJ prosecutors again have leeway to impose independent monitors when necessary to ensure companies comply with obligations under non-prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements. Monica, back to you and two updates from Court of Federal Claims. Yep, the first, an important decision on standing. On October 22nd, the court dismissed a protest filed by Aerospray, an awardee of an IDIQ contract for the Department of the Interior's plane-based firefighting services. Aerospace protest challenged the agency's award of IDIQ contracts to two other companies, 
alleging that their planes did not comply with the RFP's required firefighting configuration. Aerospray argued that despite being an awardee itself, it had standing to protest the additional awards. Why? Because, so the argument goes, those awards resulted in increased competition for awards of future task orders competed amongst the IDIQ holders to Aerospray's detriment. The court disagreed. It held that Aerospray's protest related to the award of the IDIQ contracts, not to future task orders, and that Aerospray, quote, already won the only contract award to which it could possibly be entitled, end quote. In so holding, the court also rejected the reasoning in National Air Cargo Group from 2016, which allowed an awardee to protest additional IDIQ awards due to the potential impact on future task order competitions. Second update from the court. On October 22nd, the court unsealed a decision awarding contractor Security Point Holdings, Inc. over $100 million in damages for TSA's infringement of Security Point's patent. The patent concerns a system of trays that recycle through security screening checkpoints by use of movable carts. You know, those airports we all used to go through all the time. On May 2nd, 2011, Security Point had filed a, a lawsuit under 28 U.S.C. 1498A which provides patent owners an exclusive remedy for, quote, reasonable and entire compensation, end quote, against the United States by action in the court when a patented invention is used or manufactured by or for the United States. Security Point alleged that TSA had subsequently used carts, trays, and scanning devices at security checkpoints in a manner that infringed its patent in over 400 airports throughout the U.S. TSA admitted that it had used the patented technology since 2008 in 10 airports, leaving the court to decide damages. The court determined that TSA owed Security Point $103.6 million in royalties from 2008 through the date of the opinion, plus delay damages and interest. So a long fight, but a big payday in the end. Excellent. And this has been a lot of information. Uh, We appreciate you sticking with us, uh, and we'll close out with that. Uh, Thanks so much, Monica, for joining. This has been the Fastest Five Minutes brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. See you again in two weeks. If you have any questions about these items, I can be reached at 202-624-2807. Monica can be reached at 202-624-2549. Have a great day. The Fastest Five Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast.